Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, February 13th, 2022. The share ID numbers for Friday, February 11th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 18,540. That's one eight five four zero. And for the ten AM Eastern Big Book Study, eighteen thousand five hundred and forty one. That's one eight five four one. This morning a vision for you presents chapter three. More about alcoholism. The twist of the mind. The big book teaches us that we have a twofold illness the allergy of the body, and the obsession of the mind. The allergy of the body is a bad problem. However, the big book teaches us that we have a problem worse than that. The big book says it's our main problem. We've got a mental problem. We've got a problem with our mind. Chapter 3, More About Alcoholism, illustrates the mental bedlam that goes on before the first drink, or in our case, the very first bite. Today we have three recovered compulsive overeaters who will bring to life Chapter 3, More About Alcoholism. And those three panelists include panelist number one, Esther C. from Canada. And panelist number two, Leon B., who resides in South Carolina. And then panelist number three, Leslie W. from Tennessee. And it's with appreciation I welcome panelist number one, Esther C., to the line. Good morning, Esther. Good morning. My name is Esther C., and I'm a compulsive overeater in from Canada. Thanks, Leah, for asking me to share today. Good morning to all my fellows, and a special hello and welcome to any newcomers on the line today. Um, This chapter, titled titled More About Alcoholism, and that's sort of a benign, doesn't really say anything titled to this chapter. Um, Perhaps it's going to give us some more information, but if if I'd been naming this chapter, I think I would have called it, uh, You Are Insane and Here's Why, or how about, So You Think You Can Quit on Your Own, eh? Sorry, I couldn't resist that A. That's a very Canadian thing. So let's let's dive into this chapter. But first, I want to back up and, and give a little my own history. When I first came into the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous in the late 80s, at that very first meeting already, I was told about the allergy. And as typical of the meetings that I went to at that time, they had what, you know, what you'd call your standard allergic foods, and the groups told me what I should and shouldn't eat. They didn't read the big book at those meetings, so I don't know why they chose those foods in particular and what the allergy really meant, but I didn't think through it too much because most of the foods I was told to eliminate were junk foods, so it made sense to me not to eat them. And since I was morbidly obese, and every time I got abstinent, because I was young at the time, I would lose a lot of weight, and I would lose it quickly, and my body felt better. So that's really all that mattered to me every time I got abstinent. So one second. You might be asking, and maybe you've had this experience, what do you mean every time I got abstinence? I mean, how many times did I need to get abstinent, right? Maybe the same amount of times you've gotten abstinence. Too many to count. On and off 
and on and off. In my case, it was mostly off because I knew how to stop. I just didn't know how to stay stopped. But the longer that I was in the 12 steps room, the 12 step room, the, the more information I was accumulating, right? Eventually I did attend some big book studies. And in the doctor's opinion, they told me about what the allergy means and I can ingest my ventures again. And then the chapter also told me that I couldn't stay stopped unless I had a psychic change. I wasn't sure quite sure what that meant. Um, chapter one, we read Bill's story and, uh, you know, that's a dramatic story of our co-founder. And I got to chronicle my own progression of the disease and effect on my life. And then, of course, it was more information. And there's a solution, you know, chapter two. And there I'm told over and over that I can't get out of this on-again, off-again cycle and and misery of the disease without a spiritual solution. So here I am, and I've got all this information, and yet there has not been a transformation. Now, for sure, in my earliest years of OA, the solution and how to achieve it wasn't clear to me, and it seemed like it was every man for himself, meaning whatever I thought was the spiritual solution, that would do the trick. But even after coming to a meeting like this one, where the solution, as outlined in the first 164 pages of the big book, was taught, I still was experiencing on-again, off-again abstinence. So this chapter taught me why. And this chapter highlights and, and unpacks the insanity of what we call the mental obsession. Though it doesn't call it the mental obsession in this chapter, I think it calls it mental twist. And it lets me know that that's the greater aspect of my disease. So allergy of the body, move over because you aren't the boss here and you're not the real problem. It's that strange mental twist that's really the boss. So what's life like when I'm abstinent but not recovered and haven't had that spiritual transformation? So when I, when I think I'm like everyone else, like those hard drinkers, like those dieters, but I'm really not, what's life like for me? So the first few pages of this chapter describes that craziness over and over again. In time, it says on page, I think it's 30, we are led to a to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. It continues to tell me we are in the grip of a progressive illness. We get worse, never better, and still some more. We have instances of brief recovery followed always, always by a still worse relapse. So if I am a real compulsive overeater and I'm not recovered, meaning I have not had that psychic change described in the big book, then I am without defense against that first compulsive bite. So now I'm stuck trying to figure out how to stay abstinent, or in other words, control my drinking. So on page 31, the big book describes some of the ways we've tried to control our drinking. Drinking beer only, limiting the number of drinks, never drinking alone, never drinking in the morning, um, drinking only at home, and so on and so on. So what are some of the ways I've tried to control my eating? What are the, some of the ways that I've tried to stay abstinent in program but not recovered. So one of the things I used to do is I used to bookend all my meals with a fellow with a phone call. I would used to wear clothes that didn't fit me, that were tight on me, to, to remind me not to overeat. I would exercise when I ate too much. I, I would make lots of outreach calls to distract me from the food. I would attend oodles of, oodles of meetings in the hopes that that would discourage me from eating. I would try to do lots of service. I would try to share it every single meeting. I would read every single piece of literature, 12-step related, that was ever published and produced. And all of these things are, can be neutral or could be a useful part of someone's program. And, they could, and it could even be something that we do, you know, that work temporarily to keep us abstinent, right, during, over the weeks until we complete our step work. But what they could not do for me 
was keep me abstinent for the long term because I wasn't recovered. So why couldn't the, all these methods help? All the um, methods we have tried to control our drinking, our eating, why haven't they helped? Because I am not like other people. The chapter opens up by telling me that I, not only am I not like other people, but in my abstinent-only state, I think I am like other people. The chapter tells us most of us have been unwilling to admit, the very first line of the, of the chapter, most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think that he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it's not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove that we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. Continues another two paragraphs to again tell us the same, it keeps telling us the same thing in ever stronger language and different words using even more, you know, vivid um, adjectives. And it's letting us know that, that, um, that if we think we're like other people and then the normal measures people take to lose weight or eat right will work for me, they will not work for me. And this is an admission I have to make. So, for example, a long stretch of abstinence is no guarantee of continued sobriety, right? The big book tells us that we will pick up again. And on page 32, we read the story of a man of 30 who, with sheer willpower and determination, was able to stay sober for 20 years. Now, I actually think that's quite amazing. I don't know that I'd be able to be absent for 25 years, but in any event, there's no mention of his embrace of the spiritual um, way of life, only that he was um, sober and he was not recovered, you know, what we call a dry drunk. Then the mental obsession kicks in. He tells himself that 25 years of discipline cured him. He starts drinking and to make a long story short is dead within four years. So, how are we to understand this mental obsession? Why, why doesn't all that information that we know lead me to make the right decision the same way it would in every area of my life, right? Like it, it, so much areas, our, our painful experience keeps us from doing the same thing over and over again, but it's of no value almost in, when it comes to my eating. So a fellow once showed me an exercise that she does with, with her sponsees. Um, so she showed it to me, and it's helped me visualize, and like sort of articulate for me, the, the power of this obsession. So the first thing she had me do was to list all the truths I know about this disease. She gave me a minute or two to make the list. I would write about the pain, the shame, the hopelessness it brought to my life, and all the ways that w- were affected by it, my financially, um, uh, medically, et cetera. And by the way, today when I do this exercise uh, with a fellow who's been around the big book a few times, which is basically most of the people in the rooms these days, right? For many of them, um, they've you know been through the big book and they understand, you know they have lots of information. So so for these people, I tell them in addition to listing all your truths about this disease, list also all the all the things you know about your disease that you learned in the big book, right? Like that it only gets worse and not better. That if we don't experience a spiritual transformation, then we will eat again. So make that list. They got a minute and they make the list. Then we're done with that. Um, this friend of mine had me list the excuses I've used to go back to eating, right? Go back to eating compulsively, such as, I don't know, I'll start on Monday, or I don't know, is OA really the answer? Or maybe that's not really a binge food, or, oh, I think it'll be fine. 
So we've got all the lies, excuses, flimsy excuses we tell ourselves, and of course, a whole list of all the painful experience and truth we know about our disease. So this is how I understand the mental obsession now. When I'm not recovered, and I haven't completed the process of being unblocked from higher power, I'm not filled with the power that I need, right? And on, a, on any day, and it could be a bad day, or it could be a good day, or a neutral day, right? The, the chapter calls it not a cloud in the sky, right? And then one of those flimsy excuses, like the ones I listed there, my second list, it enters my mind, and I have no defense against it. And this flimsy excuse grows. And it grows and it crowds out and it obliterates and erases every single thing I know about my disease in microseconds. It just wipes out my memory. It erases everything I know, all my painful experiences. It erases all the valuable information that I've learned on this very meeting here. And that's how a flimsy idea, sooner or later, and for me it was usually sooner, that flimsy idea has the power to erase everything I know and experience. And the next thing, ever so casually, I'm eating what I shouldn't be eating, and I'm back in that cycle. This chapter teaches me that if I am not recovered, I will eat again. So I'm looking forward to hearing from our other panelists to see what other flimsy excuses alcoholics use to go back to drinking. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Esther for bringing that part of the chapter to life. I now welcome panelist number two, Leon B., who will be starting on page 34, the third paragraph. Good morning, Leon. Thank you. Leon, star one to unmute. Leah, can you hear me? I hear you now, Leon. Welcome. Good morning. <laughs> the one time I use a landline, and it doesn't want to work. Leon B., gratefully recovered in Simpsonville, South Carolina. Um, wow, great chapter. Um, so let me preface this first. I came in OA in 2005, and I spent about, well, not about, I spent 13 years. I did not get recovered until April 30 of 2018. So my experience with this chapter is going to fluctuate between those first 13 years of doing the one, two, three, four shuffle, running into the program, running out of the program, never really enlarging my spiritual life and what's been happening over the past four years um, since I've been in, in recovery and living this wonderful life. So how then, and I'm starting from where I was told to, to um, pick up, which is page, uh, third paragraph, page 34, it says, how then shall we help our readers determine to their satisfaction whether they are one of us. The experiment of quitting for a period of time will be helpful, but we think we can render an even greater service to the alcoholic sufferers and perhaps to the medical fraternity. 
So we shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking. For obviously, this is the crux of the problem. And Esther did a did a great job, you know, talking about this this mental thought, this state that precedes a relapse. And the crux of the problem, not to belittle the allergy of the body, but this is the most important part of our disease, the mental state that precedes a relapse. And I always think about this chicken finger story. If <laughs> you ever heard my story, um, I had, it was 2005, I get a sponsor, we're going through the steps, he places me on a diet, I am crazy abstinent, not recovered, but I am thin as a rail, no carbs in my body for a pretty long time, at least four months, and my sponsor relapses. This is 2005, tells me I'm on my own, I'm in China, it's Chinese New Year, you're on your own. And so I jokingly think I can handle this on my own. And I end up at a birthday party in Atlanta. I'm living in Columbia, South Carolina at the time. And this distance is an important part of the story. My cousin's daughter's having a birthday party. I take my sons up there and they all hanging out and everyone's outside and having fun. And I'm left alone with a pan of chicken fingers and a cake, a sheet cake. And I hadn't had that, any kind of sweets in like four months. And this thought comes into mind, hmm, you haven't had chicken fingers in a while. This is sort of this experiment experiment of quitting for a period of time. I was testing this, but not knowing it. Had a couple, dipping in the honey mustard, had a few more, didn't know I was setting off this allergy of the body. I ate a good portion of those chicken fingers, looked at that sheet cake. Hmm, hadn't had sheet cake in a while. Just let me try a little slice, a little chunk. Ate a hunk. Next thing you know, almost half the, no joke, almost half the sheet cake gone. I'm like sitting there and I am humming because the allergy is rolling and I am unrecovered. My cousin walks in and the kids, they storm in, in the kitchen and he just goes, dang, these kids are just about eight, all this chicken fingers and sheep cake. I'm sitting there like, yeah, it sure did. And it was a four hour drive from Atlanta to Columbia. And I just, I remember eating that entire four hours. And I want to tell you what happened from there, but let's move on. So what sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink. Friends who have reasoned with him after a spree, which has brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy, are mystified when he walks directly into a saloon. Why does he? Of what is he thinking? Sometimes I wasn't thinking of anything. The most trivial reason would come into my thinking is Friday. I'm done with work. I know I got the house to myself. I'm getting ready to binge on my favorite jalapeno chips couple of bags of Oreos and moose track ice cream, and I got my man cave to myself. So it jumps into this example of, of Jim. I'm very honored because I know this story has been ripped apart, taken apart, explained very well. But our first example is a friend we call Jim, a man who was a, who, I mean, he had everything. This man was a, char he has a charming wife and family, a lucrative business. A, he's a veteran, a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He's very smart. He's a little nervous, you know, but does some drinking. Had not done any drink until 35, and then in, within a few years, he becomes so violent when he's intoxicated, he had to be committed. And on leaving the asylum, he comes into contact with some fellow, some fellow travelers along the way, some, some fellow AAers, and they tell him what they know of alcoholism and the answer they found. And it says that he made a beginning. So that's saying, going back to my chicken finger story, my relapse from, from my sponsor, I knew about this allergy of the body, and I knew, knew about the twist of the mind, and I did make some steps, some beginning into these steps, but it was only a beginning, which led to that 13 years of trying to 
figure things out because I really did not want to believe that I had this disease and I could not eat pie for the rest of my life. So after he makes this beginning, look at the promises in this. Look, look at the, the, the blessings of the program. Families reassembled. He begins to get his job back. He don't own it anymore, but now he works at the place that he used to own. All, all goes well for a period of time, but he fails to enlarge his spiritual life. Failed to enlarge his spiritual life. So back then, when, like I said, early in OA, I would, ne- I would do this one, two, three shuffle, get into step four, which is a key action step. I would get to it for some reason, could not get through it. And so I never really enlarged my spiritual life through the rest of the steps, through doing the steps over those 13 years. So now that I'm recovered, April 30th, 2018, how do I fail to enlarge my life now? Well, life is getting, just like Jim got those wonderful blessings from being in the program and making that beginning, I have been through the program. I'm, I'm living, as we say, in 10, 11, 12. I sponsor. I People ask me to do things like this. I'm doing them, but I'm I'm human, you know, and life has gotten big and a lot of things have come my way. But sometimes I wake straight up out of bed, hop straight into the shower, you know, get the kids ready. And then I throw in an earpiece, you know, okay, I'm going to listen to vision. You know, that's not enlarging your spiritual life. You know, you're calling into your, now we're all on Zoom. You don't have to show up face-to-face, calling into the meeting, just popping in your piece and listening while you're doing 47 other things. That's not enlarging your spiritual life. You know, failing to to make that morning connection, that evening time of review, making those outreach calls, doing that step 10 when that thing pops up. That's, that's if you're not doing those things, you're failing to enlarge your your spiritual life. And, and just like it says, to Bill's consternation, since he did not enlarge his spiritual life, he found himself drunk a half a dozen times in succession. Now, if I didn't stop and recognize that I'm not enlarging my spiritual life by getting up early, making contact with higher power, and doing those things that I just spoke of, to my consternation, I could have found myself drunk a half a dozen times in succession. Now, what I like about this next sentence is on each of these occasions, we worked with him reviewing carefully what had happened. This is a great guy to sponsor. You know, I do try to get to the bottom of what led my sponsees to just completely giving up. And normally it's failing to do the work. And I'm making that outreach call. Not, not, the main thing is not getting through the steps, not getting to this spiritual experience, not getting spiritually recovered. So he agreed. After working with him, he agreed, yes, I'm the real deal. I got this serious problem. And I'm facing another trip to the asylum. Moreover, he's going to lose his family. He had a deep affection for, for his family. And back when I didn't believe I was composed over either, I thought I could fix this on my own. 2018, after 13 years, I finally agreed, just like Bill. I knew I was in a serious way. I had to work these steps. Bill failed to, no, Bill, excuse me, James failed, Jim <laughs> failed to enlarge his spiritual life, yet he got drunk again. So we're about to get into the insight as to where Jim possibly could be in the steps. So they said, tell us exactly what happened. And he tells them this story. You know, he comes to work on a Tuesday. We like to hear a person on his line that says, what happened to Monday? Well, <laughs> who knows, you know, but he said he comes to work on a Tuesday morning. He's irritated that he had to be a salesman for a concern he once owned. I, w- I totally get that. I own the business. And if I lost it and then had to go back and work for, for, my, for the business I once owned, I would be a little irritated as well. So it's Tuesday, he's irritated. It could be Friday and you're happy. It doesn't matter. 
but him being irritated is important. He has a few words with the boss, nothing serious. And, well, a few words, we know he probably had a little, little bit of an argument, I guess. And he decides to drive, drive into the country to see about a prospect for a car. He's irritated, having words with the boss of a business he once owned, driving off. He has a resentment. He hasn't discussed with God. This is a 10 step. Look, I'm, he hasn't discussed with God or anyone else. He hadn't called the fellas he had come in contact with about how he was feeling. He could have said to the boss, look, I appreciate you giving me some, some work at the place I once owned. I shouldn't have spoken to you that way. Please understand what I'm going through. Nope, nope. He hops in the car, drives on the way, felt hungry, stops at a roadside place where there is a bar. Gets irritated, goes to a bar. No intention of drinking, just going to get a sandwich. Now, now I've done this. I'm, I've gone to the Publix, which is our local grocery store, just to pick up some pre-rents. Just, you know, that's my pre-rents for my, when I brush my teeth which is to the far left where the pharmacy is. And I'm, I'm only going for the, for the plaques. But I, I will quickly bust that right because I know that's where the bakery is and I can get that little slab of carrot cake. And here I am standing at the register with plaques, not pre-rent and a carrot cake. Doesn't make sense. Also had the notion, he said, I also had the notion I might find a customer for a car, which was familiar for I had been going to it for years. So he had been years going to this bar that had food. I had eaten there many times during the months I was sober. So he'd been going there for years. He'd been sneaking, or not sneaking, but going during times of sober. He sits down at the table, orders a sandwich and a glass of milk, no sort of drinking. And I believe him. He did, I believe he was not thinking about drinking. Ordered another sandwich and a glass of milk. Suddenly, the suddenly would get you every time. The thought crossed his mind. If I put an ounce of whiskey in, couldn't hurt me. Now, I like to call this the, you know, the, the spirit of, the, uh, or no, I shouldn't say that. You, you're going to hear about another suddenly in the next story with, with Fred. And I like to call his, his thing the threshold phenomena. I won't steal a thunder of Leslie. But so suddenly, immediately, quickly, unexpectedly, the thought crosses his mind. There's nothing you can do once that happens. Unrecovered, if you're failing to enlarge your spiritual life, I can't do anything about that thought. In, in the chapter of Vision for You, Bill describes it this way. Again. It was the old insidious insanity, the first dream. Go back and read that. He said, I ordered a whiskey, poured into the milk. Vaguely, since I wasn't being too smart, at that point, the whiskey is in him. It was about to go in him. He's about to set off this allergy of the body and this phenomena of crazing. He said, I felt reassured. I was taking the whiskey on the full stomach. The experiment went so well, I ordered another whiskey and poured it into the body. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. Now, he's off on his way. Because the crux of the problem, the mental obsession has, has pull, push, pushed him right back into drinking. He's triggered the bodily allergy and, and does what? This starts another journey to the asylum for Jim, the threat of commitment, the loss of family and position, to say nothing of the mental and physical suffering which drinking always caused him, yet he still drank. I don't know anything about being committed. I didn't come to the point. I did piss my wife off a few times. I never lost my family. Never lost my job, did my job very well. I know a lot about that intense mental and physical suffering that comes with compulsive overeating. But after you stuffed yourself in the next day, why? How? Why am I keep going to the Banana Republic thinking I wear a 34 when I really wear a 42 and they don't have much 42 in Banana Republic and they don't have double XL shirts? I remember the, the physical and the mental and the pain and the suffering. And he had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all the reasons for drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could put whiskey 
only if he mixed it with milk. And, so, and it says, whatever the definition of the word may be, this is straight up insanity. You're threatening to be locked away, lose your wife, lose your job, you do it again. How much pain does it take, Liam? How much pain does it take? How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else but insanity? And I love how it points out, and, and Essa just, just talked about this flimsy thought. You know, it says they always ran this curious mental phenomena that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for the first drink. Sound reasoning is never going to hold you in check. Spiritually, being spiritually sound and spiritually recovered will. But if you're not, the insane idea will, whiskey and milk will win out every time. Pre-rinse and carrot cake will win out every time single time. Now, remember, they talk, at the beginning of this talk, it says, we're going to describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking. Jim's mental state, he was irritated, which led to some insane behavior, mixing liquor and milk. Sometimes, and then it says, sometimes we reflected even more than Jim, yet we still ate. We took time to think about what's about to happen. We're looking at the cookie. I've looked at it, knowing what it's going to do to me, and I, and I would still eat it. Sometimes we, were, we deliberately because we, we, we deliberately ate because we felt ourselves justified. I'm nervous, I'm angry, I'm worried, I'm depressed, I'm jealous. No matter the reason, it's insane. It's insane when you consider the, the cost of what it's going to cost you. So then it does this wonderful job. Talk, I mean, and I never really understood this, this jaywalking story. I mean, it really took a lot of uh, um, self-experiences and experimenting to get what this jaywalking thing is about. This, this is insane. This dude's walking in front of traffic, breaking everything. You know, I mean, he, he went from a slightly injured, from being slightly injured to fracturing his skull, to breaking his arm, to breaking his legs, to breaking his back, to losing his family, yet still he kept running out. We, no matter how many times we're in the hospital, we can have diabetes, we can have high blood pressure, we don't sleep, we have uh, obstructive sleep apnea, I mean, we're getting in fights. I mean, we can't fit our clothes, but we still run back to the food. It's just like this jaywalker. Page 39, I'll end here. Um, it says, uh, we, have, we have not lost everything in life. So it's talking about folks that, hey, you're, you've given me a lot. So I've given you a lot. You, know, you say, Leon, I, I am not that bad. I appreciate this crux of the problem. I appreciate, appreciate the mental uh, 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 obsession that you have shared with me. I may have some of these things, but I have not lost everything in life through, through eating or drinking, and I certainly don't intend to, but thanks for the information. That may be true of certain non-alcoholic people who, through drinking foolishly and heavily at the present time, are able to stop or moderate because their brains and bodies have not been damaged as ours were. But the actual or potential alcoholic with hardly an exception, will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. This is the point we wish to emphasize and re-emphasize to smash home upon our alcoholic readers as it has been revealed to us out of bitter experience. Let us take another illustration. You're about to see the powerlessness of self-knowledge. Leon B. South Carolina, I pass. Hey, Leah, um, I can uh, go ahead and get started. Um, this is uh, Leslie W. Uh, from Tennessee, and wow, that was powerful. Um, 
you guys. All right, I'm bringing up the rear here, but I'm going to try to do this justice. Um, my name is Leslie W. I am a recovered compulsive overeater um, from Tennessee. And uh, Leah, I'm just going to keep on talking unless you want to say anything. <clears throat> All right, here I go. Um, I came into these rooms when I was 31. Yeah, I'm now 43. Um, and uh, just a little bit of background about me. Um, I do believe that I have always been wired as a compulsive overeater. However, my, my disease did not manifest itself until later. Um, and so for, for me, or later in life, um, and so for me, it was, it was really easy for me to identify with this story that we're about to, to read in page 43. Oh, no, excuse me, page 39. All right. So we're going to talk about Fred. Fred is a partner. This is on page 39. I'm going to pick it up, pick it up where Leon left off. Fred is a partner in a well-known accounting firm. His income is good. He has a fine home, is happily married, the father of promising children of college age. He was so attractive, a personality that he makes friends with everybody. Everybody likes Fred. If ever there was a successful businessman, it was Fred. To all appearance, to all appearance, he is a stable, well-balanced individual. Okay, so this right here brings us to where I feel like, for me, I... I realized that um, I was very concerned with my outward appearance to all appearances. So appearances matter the most, right? Like I, I couldn't, I didn't want to look at my internal condition. I ignored it. For me, external success equaled happiness. So I thought, okay, I'm doing pretty well. You know, I, I have a house. I have a college degree. I have a baby. I have a business. I have a husband who's, you know, loves me and, you know, is, is on his way to becoming this and that, you know, I was just like, I thought, okay, I, I, you know, I, I, I got it together. I got it together. Um, but if you look down here, it was, he talks about how Fred ended up in the hospital. So, and then he was much ashamed of it. Why was he ashamed of it? Because of his ego. Because he's not supposed to be in the hospital. He's not supposed to be having difficulties controlling <laughs> controlling his 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 liquor, right? I mean, so he was far from admitting that he was an alcoholic. Far. What does this mean? Well, it means that he he really it never occurred to him that he might have a problem, like a real problem, like a problem that he couldn't fix. It never crossed his mind. It talks about it. It says it never occurred to him that perhaps he could not quit drinking altogether in spite of his character and standing. Because this guy never met a problem he couldn't solve. This guy never, you know, <laughs> never met a mountain he couldn't climb. I mean, he was successful and he had the stats to prove that, right? And, like, that's how I felt. Too. I felt like, oh, okay, you know, I have a successful business. I have all these things like 
that I've done. Look at what I've done. Look at my life. Look at the life that I have built for myself. So for me, you know, it it really, it really didn't, it, it did not even occur to me that perhaps I could, could not control my eating. Um, my ego was so big and my pride was just written all over the place in my life and I couldn't see it. I just, you just can't see it when you're in that place. Um, he was just a long way from admitting that he could do anything about it. Self-knowledge would fix it. So these guys came in and they started talking to him. They started talking about Fred. They started, they came into the hospital, right? These founders of AA and they started telling him about what his disease, what is happening to him. They started describing what is happening to him. And, um, and he thought, well, yeah, okay. So that's great. Thanks. You know, kind of like what Leon B shared earlier about the thanks for the information. You know, um, yeah, I just, <laughs> I love that story about the chicken fingers. Um, Leon B, I'm going to call it Leon B as in Buffalo chicken fingers. Cause, cause I can so relate to that story. I think a lot of us can relate to that story because we think, okay, now that we know what the issue is, I can, I can figure this thing out, right? I can, I can, my, with my talent, my skill, my intellect, my determination, my drive, I can solve this problem. So he believed that self-knowledge would fix it. And then he goes on to say, well, what happens is, you know, the guy, the, you know, uh, the guy ended up back in the hospital. Um, And they came back again. And so, (laughs) oh, boy, it's so funny. I relate to this so much. So he he tells them, you know, I I felt like I, 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 he, he has he has a bender. The guy goes on a complete, a bender, and so he's talking about when he came back to the hospital after that that bender, and he's describing what had happened. So he said, "I felt like I was not. I reasoned that I was not so far advanced as most of you fellows. I had been usually successful in licking my other personal problems, and that I felt that I have had every right to be self confident. That it was only a matter of exercising my willpower, keeping on guard." I mean, I think that we can, you know, I know I can relate to that diet mentality. Let me just, let me just keep on guard here. I can just keep on guard. I can just be vigilant. I can just use my willpower, restraint. I can do this. There was nothing so exciting as a Monday morning of this is a new day. This is a fresh start. This is a new day. I am not going to devour that plate of brownies like an animal. I am going to eat healthy. And I bought all these vegetables and put them in my refrigerator. And that's where they stayed until they got molded and rotted out. And I had to throw them away. So um, he, he, he talks about how, what happened to him. And let's, let's look at this. So what happened to our friend Fred? Good old Fred. Fred, Fred goes on a business trip. For a while, he, you know, everything's cool. Everything's fine. It was the end of the perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon, he says, at the top of page 41. He went there on business, handled his business, everything went well. And then, I'm going to feel that threshold phenomenon. 
Okay, so I like that, the threshold phenomenon. So he comes through, he's like, you know, looking all looking all fly, you know, he like gets all dressed up and he's like, Okay, I'm gonna go down for dinner. But you know what? I'm gonna get a cocktail. That would be nice. The thought came to mind. There's that mind again. There's the obsession of the mind. The thought came to mind. It, it, it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails for dinner, right? You know, I, you know, it'd be nice to, if I can go out with my friends. You know, it's 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 so and so's birthday, and you know, I I I can just have one slice of cake. It, it's it's fine, right? You know, that that's no harm no, no harm in that. What's the harm in that? So. So it's that lackadaisical approach. It's a trap. It's a trap. And we don't see it coming. We don't see it coming. It sneaks in through the back door of our house. And and it just it's 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 just insidious. We underestimate the severity of this disease. We underestimate it. And that is when that's what the that's that's what the obsession of the mind that's when it starts you 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 you're just you're just hanging out you're just hanging out not a cloud in the sky everything's fine you know and then wham in the beginning the obsession of the mind doesn't present itself like an obsession it doesn't show up with a t-shirt that says obsession of the mind written on it and waving his hand going, hey, I'm about to hijack your brain right now. Um, it doesn't work that way. We don't, we don't see it coming. Um, and he says this time I had not thought. So he, he, he just, this guy just, just keeps on ordering one cocktail after another cocktail after another cocktail. It, the idea struck him that a highball would be fine before going back to bed. You know, that kind of stuff. It's like, you know, a little nightcap, you know. Um, let me have a little bite of this. Let me have a little bite of this before I go to bed. Um, and then he talks about how he flew back to New York, and instead of finding his wife, he found a taxi cab driver who drove him around for several days, and he didn't remember what had happened. I know little of where I went or what I did. You know, this 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 story um, for a lot of us, I think we read it and go, I never got onto an airplane and like told a taxi cab to drive me from grocery store to grocery store and restaurant to restaurant. And, you know, I never, I never ended up in jail because I ate too many Krispy Kremes. I mean, you know, that's the danger of this disease. That's why it's so easy to underestimate it. And some of us have ended up in hospital treatment and some of us haven't. Um, and that's the thing is that even if we're not in a jail, we are. We may not be in a physical jail, but we are in a mental jail. We are in the jail of our minds. And there's no place worse than that. Because that is internal hell that you cannot get away from. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, it's always there. Um, and then it said, and then he says, this time I had not thought of the consequences at all you know, lack of judgment. Um, we we don't have, you know, I don't have sound judgment when it comes when it comes to this. I just don't. And you know, he he remembers how his friends had prophesied that 
that the time and place would come and he would drink again. We know how powerful the mind is. I know how powerful the mind is so powerful in regards to this issue. Willpower and self-knowledge will not help in those strange mental blank spots. That's what he's talking about. You know, he said, if I had, if you have an alcoholic mind, the, the day is going to come. You will pick up. You will eat. If you have the mind of, if you have this, this disease, if you are a real compulsive overeater, the day will, will come when, when you will pick up. Um, and that's the prophecy that came true for him. And it's the vortex of that strange mental blank spot. That's what it talks about on page 42. You know, I mean, for me, the vortex of this, you know, I, I call it a vortex because, because for me, that strange mental blank spot, you know, um, all of a sudden, Nutter Butters is good protein, and, and pizza is considered a vegetable because it has tomato sauce on it. You know, ice cream will soothe a sore throat, and Coca-Cola will, will quell my nausea. I mean, there's, 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 there's no end to the rationalization of it. There's no end. Um, and he, he, he talks about, like, how they grinned, you know, when he ended up back in the hospital, because they knew. They knew he'd be back. They knew. We know. You know? Um, so they grinned, and he didn't like that. Why did they grin? Why, why did they grin? Because they're essentially asking him, and the way I read it, I read this, is, are you done? Have you had enough? You know, big boy, you, th you still think you're better than us? You still think you can lick this thing? You know? So, um, you know, I'm a stubborn person. I'm a willful person. I'm a defiant person. And, and a lot of us are like that. A lot of us are like that in this, in this program. Um, and I, I myself thought the same thing, you know, that he thought. It's like, I, I couldn't, I could, I'd, I'd never been able to understand. I'd never been able to understand people who couldn't solve their own problems. Like, how prideful is that? So that's what he's saying here. And then he, then they said, well, or, or then Fred says, well, I, I, I don't know. You know, this, this program of action seems pretty drastic. It's going to. I know that I know he conceded, like, I know I have an alcoholic mind. And for me, you know, there's, there's no tool that I can pick up. There's no defense that I can use, no effective mental defense against that first bite. Um, there's nothing that I can do if I don't believe in my heart of hearts, in my soul, way down to the bottom of my soul that I am a compulsive overeater and that I am bodily, bodily and mentally different from myself. There's nothing I can, if I don't believe that, nothing else is going to work. None of these spiritual, print, print, no, it, it's, it's, it's not, no tool, no sponsor, no food plan, no meeting will be able to get me abstinent and help me to stay and stay abstinent get me recovered and stay recovered. Um, I would not, he says, I would not exchange it. The best moments, the best moments 
for the worse I have now. He talks about how he has discovered that spiritual principles will solve his problems. You know, it's not easy to make changes. We don't like, I don't like change. You know, that's where for me, you know, I have to remember that um, if nothing changes, nothing changes. And what that means for me is, and I'm, I'm wrapping up, what that means for me is that if I don't, if I don't put my money where my mouth is, if I don't start doing things differently, then, if I, and that means a drastic overhaul. Lifelong conceptions thrown out the window. You know, this, this program of action is, is uh, it's not easy. You know, it's not easy, but I'll tell you what he, what he writes here is true. He has been brought into a way, for me, brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying and I hope more useful than the life I had before. My old manner of life was by no means a bad one, but I would not exchange it. For the, I would not exchange its best moments for the worst I could have now. I would not go back to it even if I could. And that's, that's how I feel too. I would not, I would not go back to that mental torture ever. I never, ever, ever want to go back to that mental torture, that place that I was in, that, that mental jail that I was in. But for, but for us today, for this purpose, we're talking about the, um, the mind. You know, there is no effective mental defense against the first fight. That's what it says. At the end of this page, page 43, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. We have no mental defense. The compulsive overeater, the real compulsive overeater, has no effective mental defense against the first fight, the first compulsive fight. Our defense must come from God, from a higher power. But there's a price to pay. This is a gift. This life, this way of life, the freedom from the obsession is a gift that we are given and this is a gift that i have been given but there's there's been a price to pay freedom isn't free you know god requires my obedience my surrender i'm required to set aside my pride my defiance my rebellion and live by spiritual principles and that wasn't very exciting to me i i preferred to live I love the adrenaline of playing with fire. You know, that, that was my MO. I wanted to get a, see how much I could get away with and still, you know, still live. Um, so today, you know, I can say that all the reasons, intellect, circumstances, human power will not circumvent the working of the mind. And that my mind has, has, is no longer Instead of being hijacked uh, with the disease, it's, it's hijacked. I feel like it's hijacked, you know, with God's, God's power, grace, and mercy for my life. And that's the realm that I live in today. Um, and so with that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass. Thanks. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you to all three panelists, Esther C., Leon B., and Leslie W., for bringing Chapter 3, More About Alcoholism, to life in such a powerful and profound manner. Greatly appreciate your service this morning. Today's year ID, 18,546. That's 18546. We will now transition to question-answer segment. 
um, with the speakers. By the way, their contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so you'll need to stay tuned for that. But we will transition to questions. You can pose a question to our panelists by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Freya H. Freya. Star one to unmute. Great opportunity to ask questions. Christina L. Thank you, Christina. Maria D. Maria D. Kathy K. Kathy K. Anyone else? Joanne L. Joanne L. Ken Ken W. H. N-W-H. Okay, that's a fine group. All right. Let's begin our question segment with Freya H. Hi, Freya H., a recovered compulsive eater bulimic in Colorado. Um, my question is for anyone who feels inspired to answer it, but um, in your experience, as you become recovered, what you know, the mental obsession doesn't go away, but does it, um, how does the experience change? Which panelists would like to respond? This is Esther. I'll take that better. Okay, Esther, and then we'll go on to Leon. Go ahead, Esther. Well, I like the example that Leon gave about Bill in the chapter Vision for You when he was vacillating between going into that bar or not, and he recognized that old insidious um, thinking. So I think in the early stages, um, perhaps there's a somewhat of a like that in, inner battle, and, and and hopefully you know we've got enough of that power to from our higher power, right? To who solved our problem that, that um, you know, the right, we're moved in the right direction. I think it's, a, it happens a little bit more subtly moving, moving further. However, I, my own experience has been when uh, my spiritual work is sloppy um, and I could have periods of time in the last 10 years where it has been, I've had that experience of coming home thinking, thinking a thought that and then that you know immediately remind like you know would jolt me back to reality so so i think it, it ha something that happens naturally I, w I wasn't able to you know put my finger on the timeline but definitely it's a state of execution meaning i, I if i want to stay al alive then i need to make sure that i you know do what i have to do on a daily basis pass thank you esther and Leon, 
was going to share very similarly. So we'll move on to the next question with Christina L. Your turn, Christina. Good morning, Leah. Thank you so much for your service, and thank you to um, the three panelists. I don't usually get to be on the special edition on Sunday morning, so I'm really grateful for this um, opportunity. Um, I missed a little bit in the beginning. I came in in the middle of Leon, but my question is um, for any of the panelists, um, when those those mental blank spots and twists come up, like what, um, what do you do to... Uh, I guess, overcome them or turn them around, stay away from them. You know, yes, I have, um, you know, I, I am recovered and everything like that. But at the same time, you know, I've been recovered and those mental blank spots and um, twists of the mind have come in. So I know it was like kind of touched on in the last response, but if you could elaborate a little bit more on what you do when those situations arise and how to not... Um, believe them, I guess. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, Christina. Which panelists would like to respond to Christina's question? Ms. Um, Leon B. Christina. Okay. Go ahead, Leon. Uh, go go Leon. Uh, I'll go after you. Okay. No, um I was just I was just gonna say um for me personally, um once you have and I don't know where you are exactly in the in the step there there is a promise about not fighting it and you're not craving it you're you're in this position of 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 neutrality can that be tested yes if you fail to enlarge your your spiritual life meaning that you're not working these steps yeah crazy thoughts will pop up um but once you've gone through the steps you have something in place you have you have tools, you have, an, you have an action, you have steps to help. Okay, this is not right thinking. Let me pick up the phone. I mean, I very recently had to, had to do this. My mind was going all over the place, you know, and just because of just like Jim, just being irritated, things going on, life's getting really big, programs getting small, thoughts start to pop up. Let me stop and call somebody and get rigorously honest with someone about where I am in life and what's going on. And doing it, I did this the other, um, someone asked me this the other day when I was um, doing a step 10. Th th these steps are crucial. A step 10 is crucial. You know, if, if, if your mind is humming and buzzing, you're thinking about something, you know, take your, take your temperature. Am I selfish? Am I in selfishness? Am I in dishonesty? Am I in resentment? Am I in fear? And mine, mine are normally fanciful resentments, and I did an outreach call, and I called this guy, and I started telling him what I was going through. And once I got it all out and, you know, gave it to God and prayed about it, and he said, well, first of all, and I asked for feedback, he said, first of all, how do you feel? I said, I feel great, because <laughs> I was able to, to, to get that thing out of me. He said, well, that's the whole purpose of a, of a 10th step, is that you don't get that hit off of whatever item that you're trying to reach for. You get the hit off your your higher power. You, you you get the hit off of working these steps. And so that's all I'm sure for that. Thank you, Leon. Leslie, did you want to respond? I echo as well? what Leon said. No, I can't answer that any better. Okay. 
Thank you. Thanks, Christina, for the question. Next up, Maria D. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. All right, appreciate it. And I, I appreciate uh, everyone on the call. Thank you very much. Um, it's uh, it's just so interesting to uh, always just kind of listen in and identify with everyone. Uh, and my question to the group is, do you remember, um, I guess, when you first identified as a compulsive overeater? And was that hard for you to do? Um, basically, with the mind, the ego being involved, was there a fight there? Uh, and if, if uh, each of you could elaborate, or one of you, I'd appreciate it. Panelists, would you um, like to respond? Esther? I'll take a stab at that sure. as well. Okay, go ahead, Leon, then we'll go to okay. Esther. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, wanna be, uh, I can tell you exactly. Um, just like I said in my story, when I, I started in OA in 2005, and, and I really did not want to believe that I had this disease. Um, and so I did this 13-year experiment. Not that I wanted to go 13 years of in and out of the rooms, on and off diets, up and down in weight, the public humiliation, the comments being made, the the mental, the physical suffering that I went. I, for me, I had to, I'm one of those people, you know, you can tell me the stove is hot. I'm going to touch it myself to see if it's hot. You can tell me I'm a composable eater, and I was more so trying, trying to to not believe I was composable of either. But it wasn't until in 2018, after all those years of trying, um, I finally heard the message. I had gone, I had been through a binge. I was gaining, not gain, I had gained 50 pounds in a matter of no time. I was miserable, and I was, I thought, was that my lowest point? And I heard the message. And it was almost like, and it's not like I hadn't heard this message before, but I finally heard it in a point of willingness and pain. And for the first time, I realized I hit myself in the head like that commercial. Man, I should have had a V8. I said, this is what I am. There's nothing else that's been able to explain why I have done to myself what I have done to myself over the past 13 years. That was the moment that I knew I was a compulsive overeater. I don't wish it takes anyone 13 years because I wasted a lot of life doing that, but it, it took what it took. I passed. Thank you, Leon. Esther, did you also want to add something, or Leslie? Sure, just briefly. I, when I first came in, I was quite young, and I was thinking, am I, a, yes, a compulsive overeater? No, not a compulsive overeater. I don't know if these people are really my type. Um, and I took a lot of uh, vacations of years length from Overeaters Anonymous until I finally came in about 15 or 18 years later, severely mangled, um, walking with a cane in my 30s, having social workers call me from my children's school, wondering what's going on at home, that everybody's all over the place. And in that um, low state, when I came back to OA, and I've never left since, I didn't need like it was obvious to me that there was something about my food that was making my life unmanageable. So if they would have told, whatever they would have called me at that point, I would have agreed to it, agreed with it because, because uh, my suffering, you know, brought me there and kept me there. I'll pass. 
Thank you. Leslie, did you want to respond as well? Yeah, I'll quickly respond as well. Thank you, Leah. Um, yeah, I'm definitely, uh, you're talking about the fight. I'm a fighter. I think I, you could just tell. <laughs> I mean, you know, and that's, I've always, I was taught that, that you know, you, you should fight. You should um, fight for what you believe in, fight for what's right. Um, don't give up, you know. So for me, it was really difficult concept for me to grasp um, that in order to um, to gain serenity and abstinence and become recovered from this disease that I actually had to give up. It was it was a, it was very um, it was very confusing to me and I didn't understand because society taught me that I'm supposed to fight and I'm not supposed to give up. So I fought, I fought and I fought and I fought and I came in in 2010, but I didn't get abstinent until 2016. And I've had, you know, back to back abstinence ever since. But for me, you know, I, I literally, I, I literally had to have that fight beaten out of me and there's no, there's, there's no greater convincer than the food. Um, so I had, I had many, many chicken finger cake moments, um, you know, and, uh, it, it's, it's really something that I think, you know, all of us can identify with is that fight. So you're not alone. Thank you, Maria D., for your question. Kathy Kay, your turn. Uh, good morning, everyone, and thank you, Leah, for your service. Thank you to the three panelists. I would love to hear from any one of you about um, what you do on a daily basis um, to arrest the spiritual malady. I found that I've been abstinent for many years now, but I still wrestle with twisted thinking and delusions and fears um, that I know I'm powerless over. So um, if you could tell me what you do on a daily basis to address the twists of the mind, I would be most grateful. Which panelists would like to respond first? This is Esther. Please go ahead, Esther. So the big book tells us that um, in different places it gives it a different name, but basically a spiritual transformation is what um, is the key to us to uh, um, to solve our drinking problems in our case, our food problem. Um, in some places, it calls it a psychic change. On page 27, it elaborates and says, ideas, emotions, and attitudes are discarded and replaced by new ones. And in this way of living, co- uh, clears um, away the things that block us from our higher power. And, you know, in chapter four, we um, had, had made, come to the conclusion that only this higher power could, um, to, could solve our problem. So everything I do 
um, the most important thing I do every day and everything I do is focused on that goal, which is to um, develop that relationship with the God of my understanding and then to clear anything that blocks me from that and to understand that it's, it's a life and death mission. I just, obviously, we, we, we could live joyfully, but that is important. And I would say, like, if you look at hospitals, they have emergency room, um, like driveways. They keep those things clear. You want to park there? You want to stop it? Nope. Got to move out. Got to move out. They can't let anything be blocked because for the, an expectation that there will be an emergency and someone's life will be saved. And it's the same thing with me. Um, the big book tells us that we can't um, harbor those resentments, justified resentments, fears. These are all things that eventually, <laughs> excuse me, will um, will uh, sort of build up as like sludge, you know, in pipes, and then eventually will be blocked. And then that obsession is going to be able to suddenly speak louder and louder and louder, and then of course overcome all the truth we know about our disease. So, in a nutshell, that those are the three things I do. Um, 10th step, which is remove the things that block me, 11th step, build that relationship, and 12th step, carry the message to others. Pass. Thank you, Esther. Thank you, Kathy Kay, for that question. Joanne L., your turn. Star one to unmute. This is Joanne L. from Ohio. Um, I struggle constantly with this concept of being uh, recovered. Um, I work this program probably 10 times harder than I worked my other 12-step program to address another addiction. And if being totally neutral to the food and or, in my case, the booze is, um, what, how, how recovered manifests itself, then I'm recovered from alcoholism, but I'm certainly not recovered from my food addiction. And I don't understand that. So I, I struggle all the time when I hear people saying that they're recovered. How do you know that? What, what is that defining thing that I can put my thumb up against and say, okay, yeah, I am. I am recovered. I, I, it, it seems very elusive to me. If if one of you or all of you could address that, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you all for your service. <clears throat> this is Leslie. Can I take a stab at it? Yes, um, please go ahead, Leslie. That's such a great question because when I first came onto this line and I give this meeting credit for, you know, um, actually from, from my, from my um, hearing that, that for, for saying that, not being afraid to say that word recovered because I'd never heard that word before in any, any meeting I'd ever been in. And there is, um, a page in the big book that talks about how we are given neutrality, you know, around our, 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 uh, bench foods. And, and it says, um, oh gosh, of course I can't find the page where it's at. Um, 
but it talks about neutrality. And here it is, 85. Okay, um, 84 and 85, we have ceased fighting anyone or anything, even for me, food. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor, food. If tempted, we will recoil from it as if from a hot flame. We will react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude towards food has been liquor, has been given to us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it. Neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. Okay, so that to me is recovered, and that's what we talk about in, in this meeting. We, you know, we do have special editions where that's talked about. Um, you know, and so um, that when you have that neutrality, like for me, the day that I could bake a chocolate cake for my husband and let it sit on the kitchen counter for days or dig my knife into a peanut butter jar and make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for my kids and it not, and I not like start breaking out in a sweat. <laughs> I mean, that's, that is the definition of, for me, you know, having that neutrality around not only my substance, but around people too. It says we have ceased fighting anything or anyone. So that's, the, that's really what it means to be recovered to me. And it's a very important word. And I think it is a word that gives hope to people who think that they can never get better. Um, from this disease when we can live in the world happy, joyous, and free as recovered individuals. So I hope that answers your question. Happy to talk offline about it. Thanks. Thank you, Leslie. Any other panelists want to address Joanne's question? Yes, yeah, Leon B. I was just going to share one point because I heard her say something and then Dr. Bob's story just kind of popped in my head. I'm just going to refer her um, to that story where he says, unlike most of our crowd, I did not get over my craving for liquor much during the first two and one-half years of abstinence. So it was with him. And Dr. Bob helped. I mean, he was the co-founder, and he helped thousands. And he didn't obviously receive the, the neutrality that he looked at his fellow AAers and what they were in enjoying. You know, he said, it was almost always with me, but at no time ha have I been anywhere near yielding. You know, that sounds like a little neutrality to me, but I would take a look at Dr. Bob's story too. That's all. Thank you, Joanne L., for your question. Ken WH, your turn, star one to unmute. Thank you, Leah. Ken W.H., Cary, North Carolina, recovered compulsive eater. Um, this may sound like a, a strange question. Who knows? Uh, I was thinking about uh, the laughter that, or the grin, the so-called grin that Fred got, um, that, that kind of grin of knowing. And uh, just playfully thinking and asking you all, uh, when the thought comes and I see that as a thought from, well, whatever force you want to call it. But anyway, it's a lie. When the lie comes into my brain, what, uh, what does your brain do practically in that moment to um, basically tell that lie what it is? I mean, how do you read? 
just kind of like a practical, do you have a practical tool or something that you just say to yourself out loud that, that <laughs> negates that, that lie? Thanks. Panelists? This is Esther. I just had a small thing to respond. Um, I find that the um, sort of tough approach works for me. It doesn't work for everybody. Some people like to tell themselves loving things. But if a thought like that came to mind, I would just quickly, you know, figuratively grab myself by the lapels and say, yeah, you do that. And by the time you die, they'll all be, you know, surrounding your grave and they'll be happy that you're gone, you know, because that's, that's what your life and their life is going to be by the time you take this, you know, compulsive bite to its last conclusion. So meaning my, the same way that I wouldn't run, try to cross a busy highway, um, you know, because knowing what that would do to me, like all I have to do is imagine the end and that, you know, so, you know, that same, the same, by the same token, when it's, you know, if that thought ever occurs to me, it's, the big book says it's quickly supplanted, meaning it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't stick. It would be like the most ridiculous thought. And that's, and that's a good thing because that means that, you know, that lie of just, oh, just one bite or, oh, I'll start on Monday hasn't had the opportunity. It's, asphyxiated before it even has a chance to like, um, you know, grow and, and overwhelm everything that I know about the disease. I'll pass. Thank you. Anyone else want to address Ken's question? Panelists? Yeah, this is Leslie. I'll mm -hmm. address it. Sure. Um, yeah, Ken, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, not today, Satan. That's what I say. Um, no, I'm just kidding. So really, what I do is I pick up the phone, and I just I, I know that when I'm in that state, I I, I I'm not thinking. I'm not thinking. I, my brain, I can't trust it. I cannot trust that my brain is going to tell me what to do, the right thing to do. So I have people in my life. That's why relationships and accountability in this program are so important because I have to pick up that. I have to be willing to pick up that phone and tell on myself and say, I'm really thinking I'm real. This is like, this is, this is looking good right now. Um, and uh, I, I don't know what's going on, but you know, I need, I need to be honest. So I just get really honest and I have certain, certain people in my life and in my network that, you know, um, <laughs> that are just real, that they're, they're just real ball busters and they'll just straight up tell me, you know, you're, 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 you're cuckoo. You're, you're, you're nuts right now. So, and, and, and that's what I need to hear. I need to hear somebody say, Leslie, and speak into my life and say, Leslie, you're not, you're not thinking clearly. So how can I help you get back to God? How can I help get, you know, what can I do? Now that person on the other line will say, what can we do? right now in this moment to help get you back in line with God and God's will for your life. And um, that for me is, is, is the only thing that works. Um, and then, you know, just 
removing myself from any and all distractions so that I can't, you know, I have to, I have to be by myself sometimes just get on the floor in my closet and just be by myself um, and remove, remove myself from whatever it is that's, that's um, presenting itself at that current moment. So, pass. Thank you, Ken WH, for your question. We have time for one more question, perhaps. Anyone else have Nancy something? L. Nancy, go ahead with your question. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is for Ruth. Um, you mentioned that uh, you were getting, when you were actively in the disease, that you were getting calls from social workers asking, what's going on with the kids here at school? What's, what's the problem at home? Could you address that, please? I mean, I was quite ashamed of it, and I realized that I had a problem and that all my intelligence and um, social support, et cetera, was of no value. I couldn't make a go of, of life, but this disease is rendering it unmanageable. So it takes what it takes for everybody. For some people, they get to it before, you know, the family suffers terribly or they get to it before they're, I don't know, diagnosed with a terrible illness, you know, whatever, it, that's what it took for me. I guess that was the point where, um, you know, where I was willing to go back to the rooms of OA and willing to do everything I was told and not to question it and not to, and not to, you know, have a snobby approach to the people I met in the rooms. And I've never looked back since then. When I was in the rooms and I had a sponsor, I she did 90% of the talking and I did all the listening and I did what she told and I didn't, you know, question, question it. I just, you know, forged full steam ahead because anything was better than the way I was living at that time. Does that answer your question? Let's assume that's a yes. Yes, thank you very much. Excellent. Very good. Okay. And time for one more. One more quick question. Anyone else with something on their mind? Star one. Oh, yeah. Would I be able to add something to that? This is Denise A. Um, go ahead, Esther. Yes. I didn't want to leave add. people with a... I just wanted to just to contrast that with about three years later when I had already been recovered for a few years, uh, one of my children was graduating and they asked me to speak at the graduation ceremony. And for me, that was a great um, touching moment because it showed me that what a person can go to from a, a place where, you know, things are out of control to a place where you representing, you know, uh, something for your children's school, a graduating class of almost 100 students. So I, I felt like I wanted to add that to, just to let people know that whatever, however we come in, whatever low point, everything could be transformed. Like really that whatever happened really is the mulch that beautiful things could grow from. Thanks, Leah, for letting me continue. And with that, I'll pass. Yes. Thank you, Esther, for adding that. And the one last question from Denise, please. Denise, did you have okay, a question? Okay, th yeah, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. 
I have a question about long-term, uh, for the long-term people. When they started, um, how did you develop this uh, group of individuals that you consider part of your support? I make phone calls. I make phone calls. I make phone calls. It sounds like we're, you know, hitting it off and we have a rapport and we'll be in touch. And then crickets. So I don't know how I'm supposed to, other than mm-hmm. keep hammering away at these phone calls. Okay, we got yeah. it. Thank you, Denise, okay. for that question. Mm-hmm. Leon B. And um, Leon, thank you. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, start with your local group, you know, and, and that's where I started. My sponsor said, find you someone that you, because you can't call your sponsor all the time, so find you, because he, he or she is busy. Find you someone that, that you can talk to. And I just walked up to him and said, well, would you be a part? At the time, it was known for me as a God squad. Would you be a part of my God squad? And most people are overjoyed to say yes. And and then I have been a part of other groups. I've gone to conventions. Um, I've met people. We've hit it off. I hit it off with everyone. But um, and then you, and you really do have to sometimes come to a point where you don't care. Sometimes I have in my phone a name, OA. It's like hitting the roulette wheel. I would just flick that thing up and click on the first OA that pops up, and I'll call somebody out of the blue. I would tell you to keep trying. But, yes, for sure, go up, start with your local group. Say, hey, I need to do some outreach calls. Will you be be a part of this network of individuals? And I've had people call me all the time, but but don't give up. You know, yes, sometimes we can be a little bit. I can be a little horrible with calling folks back if I forget, but I always do try. Um, we're, we're human. We're going to make mistakes, but don't give up. Thank you, Leon, and of course, thank you, Denise, for that question. Thanks to everybody who posed questions this morning, and thank you so much. To our panelists, Esther C. from Canada, Leon B. from South Carolina, and Leslie W. from Tennessee, thank you for bringing Chapter 3, More About Alcoholism to Life, threaded together with your personal experience, certainly made for a powerful and impactful presentation this morning. Today's Sheer ID, 18,546. That's one eight five four. We're going to close from page 164. It's from a chapter entitled, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.